Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. It's such an honor to be here today with the incomparable Hannah Beth Jackson. Ms. Jackson, as I'm sure you know, is an attorney, former California State Assembly member, former California State Senator, and really just a an advocate, a justice advocate for, for, for women um, as shown by her, her body of work over the years. Among her notable legislation signed into law uh, in 2017, there was SB 63, the New Parent Leave Act, which provides 12 weeks of job protected maternity and paternity leave for California employees who work for companies with 20 or more employees. Uh, in 2018, Governor Brown signed into law her SB 826, which required gender diversity on California's corporate boards. And in 2020, Jackson's SB 1383 expanded job protection for family leave to millions of Californians, um, signed by Governor Newsom. And dare I mention a former junior tennis champion, uh, Hannah Beth Jackson, thank you for taking the time to uh, sit down uh, and, and talk to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. How are you today? Well, I'm great. And I'm delighted to be able to chat with you and some of the folks who listen to this great podcast and share, share some ideas and answer any questions you might have um, looking back and perhaps looking forward. Yeah, no, thank you. It's such a pleasure. Uh, I wanted to maybe just start right away. Um, you know, I know that uh, you recently had the COVID-19 vaccine. And I was just wondering if you could just talk a little bit about um, how that was and what that experience was like for you. Well, uh, you know, it is a, an enormous relief. I think most people will agree when they get that first shot in particular, just the, the relief, the reduction of anxiety, because uh, you know that uh, there is something there that's going to help protect you going forward and allow you hopefully to start thinking about living a normal life again. Uh, uh, for me, seeing my grandchildren, being able to see good friends, uh, perhaps go out and every now and then uh, have a, an actually well-cooked meal at a restaurant as compared to my fairly fruitless efforts to, to cook. Um, so the relief uh, and the reduction of stress and anxiety, I think is almost overwhelming. Uh, the experience itself, um, I just had my second shot about a week ago and that was kind of rough. Um, so I would recommend to people, I think it depends which shot you get or not, because some people have no reaction. Others like myself have a bit of a reaction. So my suggestion to folks who are about to get that second shot, um, is to give themselves a day or two to just kind of take it easy and not uh, be out there practicing for a marathon, because uh, <laughs> it, it could hit you kind of hard. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, this is what we need to be doing. We have to have that herd immunity. We have to make sure that people um, uh, over a certain age in particular and our teachers and those who are our first responders and basically everyone who can uh, get uh, protected will get vaccinated. And of course, we're seeing now that we've got the Johnson & Johnson shot now, the, the single dose. And this, this administration is truly committed uh, to getting that vaccine made, uh, to getting it manufactured, getting it distributed, and getting it into the arms of as many people as possible so that we can move on from this horrific pandemic, which, is, which has taken the lives of over 530,000 Americans. I mean, that number is just so staggering that it's just impossible to comprehend. Uh, but we really need to uh, get this vaccine into the arms of, of our people and uh, move on and move forward, uh, rebuild our uh, economy, um, get back to protecting our environment and create uh, a post-COVID workplace that is more responsive to the needs of working people um, and creating new paradigm uh, so that this experience, we will have been able to make lemonade out of these lemons. Yeah. And, you know, I want to talk about you and, and you know, in your career and some of your experiences, because, you, you know, you recently wrapped up a long time in the state legislature. But before we go there, let's talk a little bit about uh, the vaccine and, and COVID. Obviously, We've had a change in administration in Washington, D.C., so there's an entirely different outlook going forward. But can you talk a little bit about how the state, how the country has uh, dealt with um, the pandemic and, and obviously most recently the rollout of the vaccine? Sure. 
Well, I'd give the federal government an F minus. Um, I truly believe that had this been taken seriously, had we not dismantled uh, the Center for Disease Control and our federal protective, uh, if you will, armor that uh, has been in place for decades that has protected the people of this country, had this not been uh, destroyed effectively, um, and had we had leadership that was competent and understood and accepted the threat that this pandemic had created, um, I believe that we would have seen a far uh, lesser impact. Uh, we'd be back on track. Our economy would not have suffered. And frankly, I think the American people feel the same way because we now have new leadership. And again, I think that the states, uh, it's been a very mixed bag, in part because states aren't, this is not something that the states are equipped or have been equipped to deal with. This has been the responsibility of the federal government. Right. And so suddenly the states are told, you go out and you order all the equipment, you take care of this on your own where the states just don't have the people power or the expertise. And that's where we've seen states scurrying. We've seen California scurry to try to figure out the best approach. We've seen it locally. Our Department of Public Health is, has not been set up uh, to be able to take the lead on this. The state, we, we, we've learned as we've gone by, uh, the governor tried to initially to be very proactive um, with some success, but we have to realize California really is a decentralized government. There are 58 individual counties right. that make these decisions for themselves. The governor's uh, was only able to give direction but there's no enforcement mechanism. And so unless the enforcement has taken place on the county level and the enforcement, the enforcement agency is the sheriff. And we have 58 different separately elected sheriffs, some of whom have taken this seriously. Unfortunately, several who have not and who have not been willing to enforce uh, these um these regulations and, and, and rules. Uh, we've, seen, we've seen spikes in this, and frankly, we've seen it in Santa Barbara. There's been a period of time very recently where we've had some of the worst levels in the state. And uh, I think that um, it really would have helped us uh, had we had true enforcement. There are other communities in the central coast of California that have done a much better job enforcing the mask rules, uh, the social distancing, keeping gyms and other facilities closed that weren't supposed to be opened. Um, but here we are now, and hopefully uh, with the vaccine and with people really taking that level of responsibility, um, and not all have, and I have to say I am very disappointed in those who haven't because I frankly don't believe that wearing a mask or that asking people to wear a mask is denying them liberty. What it's doing is it's protecting others from getting sick. Um, and the fact that this has become a political issue uh, to me is frankly shameful. Um, this is a matter of public health and safety. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping that again, we've turned that corner uh, and that we will be through this pandemic um, sooner. It's taken far too long, far too many deaths, far too many families who are uh, shaken and um, uh, bereaved uh, because of the deaths of loved ones. And for, for grandchildren and grandparents, that lack of contact, I think really is a, is a loss. And of course, to say nothing of the educational loss that these children are experiencing, everything from um, our childcare facilities and programs all the way through higher education. The, the, the uh, number of uh, individuals and the impact of this pandemic, I don't think we're gonna know for quite some time, uh, but it is my hope that now with the, the commitment of this administration, the rolling out of um, vaccine, uh, we're going to see uh, see if not an end to this, then then have it controlled so that we can try to get back to uh, our, get our kids back to school, get our businesses open, people being safe and healthy. And again, give a big thank you and shout out to our first responders, our doctors, our hospitals, uh, our critical uh, employees, uh, and get our teachers back to teaching. Yeah, there's been a lot of talk recently about teachers in Santa Barbara County not being able to get vaccinated. Um, there, there's, um, they were able to open it up initially to teachers who teach students of special needs, but Santa Barbara Unified went back, uh, Goleta Union is going back, and teachers have not been able to get sh uh, vaccinations through the county yet for the general population, although CVS recently opened and said, you, you know, you can make appointments 
appointments there. Um, what do you think about how long it's taken for schools to reopen in Santa Barbara County? This is a hot button issue, of course. Um, well, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a no win situation, Josh. If we open the schools, these are teachers. Many of them have families. Many of them are in a vulnerable age themselves uh, that they take care of uh, people who are at risk. They go home uh, and they care for parents, for example, or they have children or loved ones who have uh, either special uh, conditions or are uh, you know, in the at-risk population. We're saying to them, too bad, we're not gonna vaccinate you, but you go teach. Uh, we do know with this with this uh, virus that there are a lot of uh, people, particularly young people, who can be asymptomatic and transmitting the disease to these teachers. Sure. We've seen the number of people who've died. Why should why should teachers say uh, it's okay to put me at risk uh, without the, uh, considering uh, the circumstances under which we're asking them to teach. On the other hand, we do need to get our kids back to school. So I think now that we've got more vaccines coming, we're gonna vaccinate those teachers, hopefully get them uh, in that queue so that they can get those vaccines so that we can open our schools. You know, part of it is um, that uh, schools almost by definition have, you know, terrible air, uh, air vac systems. I mean, it's just uh, something that's been known I, when I was a kid going to school. Uh, our schools just aren't equipped well uh, with that kind of air circulation that they need. Um, we need to create distance with children. We need to make sure that they're disciplined in wearing masks. Uh, there, there are lots of uh, uh, needs that, that have been created as a result that aren't necessarily met. So I think we've got to get our teachers vaccinated and we've got to get our kids back to school. And I, and again, I hope now that we're seeing more manufacturing of vaccines, uh, we're seeing more uh, different types of vaccines coming online uh, that we'll be able to get this done. Has it been too long? Absolutely. Why? Because we didn't have a federal government that cared or was competent enough to address this pandemic early and quickly and effectively. Let's, uh, Let's stick with that theme. And then I want to go back and talk a little bit about, again, you know, your time in the state legislature. What did you think of the, uh, the riots, the, the, the protests, the invasion, whatever uh, you want to call it, that happened at the Capitol, um, you know, uh, regarding uh, the inauguration? Uh, what, what did you think of that? Just, you know, as a lawmaker, as an American, what was your take on that? Well, I think like most people, I was both horrified and terribly devastated that here in the United States of America, that's something that you would envision happening in Nazi Germany. Mm. Uh, that's something that you would envision happening in a third world country, but not the great democracy of the United States of America. Never in my lifetime had I ever seen anything, never did I think I would see anything. I mean, the worst I had seen, and I was horrified by it uh, uh, as a little girl, and then as we've seen it recurring, are the uh, old tapes of the McCarthy hearings. Um, uh, when uh, uh, Mr. Walsh said to Mr. McCarthy, Mr. McCarthy, have you no shame? I mean, that was a seminal moment in American democracy. And here we saw this invasion. We saw this insurrection. It was nothing short of an insurrection, trying to uh, disrupt the actual physical counting of votes, uh, ceremonial indeed, but clearly a critical part of maintaining our democratic system, our democratic process. I was horrified. Uh, it, was, it was the worst um, moment, I think, in this country's history since the Civil War, and absolutely unequivocally so. The fact that uh, uh, these people came in uh, with guns, uh, looking like absolute lunatics, behaving like absolute lunatics, taking over the Congress of the United States of America, mm -hmm. threatening our leaders, um, to the vice president who had to be scurried away. And this was all fomented by uh, the president of the United States. Um, it just, there's no question about it. And uh, uh, if, if we are going to continue as a democracy, we have got to condemn that. We've got to make sure it never happens again. We've got to rebuild that trust and confidence uh, that people have in our system of government. Look, I've been through a lot of elections where my candidate didn't win. 
hanging chads back in when uh, George W. Bush was declared the winner by the United States Supreme Court. And yet, because this is a democracy, we go forward and we accept the results of that democracy. And we don't let um, insurrectionists, we don't let potential um, dictators come in and with absolutely no basis, in fact, whatsoever, claim that their loss was, um, was un, uh, uh, you know, was, was inaccurate, that it was fraudulent. Uh, I mean, this is nonsense. There's never been any proof of this, and yet we we saw how uh, this this so-called president was able to gin up uh, the anger and the fear and the frustration of enough people who came into the capital of the United States uh, determined to do harm and to cause the death of five people. I mean, this is this is something that I just don't think can be pushed under the rug or should be. Uh, it has to be a teachable moment. It has to be condemned. And we have to work to make sure that it never happens again or the United States of America, the democratic experiment, the great experiment that that happened um, back in 1776 and with the um, Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights and what have you uh, will have uh, have left the, left the earth. And, and I just think um, we, we can do better and we have to do better. Yeah, well put, uh, for sure. The response to the lack of preparation for this, or as some say, <clears throat> the allowance of this to happen because of the types of people who were protesting. But we'll move on. Um, you know, I don't ever envision you as somebody who slows down. But uh, now that you're not in the, the state legislature, what, what are you doing right now? Uh, what's sort of like the next stage of, 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 of life for you? Well, you know, I think my uh, career in elected offices is, uh, is done. Um, I, I can't think of an office that I'm interested in running for. Um, I served 14 years in the California legislature. I feel as though I accomplished a great deal. Uh, but I'd like to help implement uh, some of the legislation that I passed. So I am uh, consulting. Uh, I'm hoping to sort of expand a consulting practice to help, uh, whether it's environmental uh, communities, whether it's uh, businesses locally or statewide or nationally, really start implementing some of the uh, efforts, some of the laws of policies that I was able to uh, author and pass. You, you mentioned a few of them uh, early on. I also wrote what is now really the seminal legislation on equal pay uh, and want to make sure that um, pay for uh, that when we hire people, when we promote them, uh, when we consider their, their job performance is done uh, without any consideration for gender so that we don't see that discrimination that we have seen over the course of uh, our history, uh, where women have been historically paid less for doing uh, a substantially similar work to their male counterparts. Uh, and I do believe that going forward, uh, businesses really do want to do the right thing. And I, I'm hoping that I'll be able to help them and do some strategic planning with them and some consulting with them on how to best achieve those goals and really become uh, the kinds of businesses that take into account uh, not just their shareholders, uh, but their stakeholders. And uh, to me, that means uh, people, uh, planet as well as profit. Uh, so I'm looking forward to doing some of that work, perhaps getting involved um, in also doing some work uh, with a think tank to try to advance some of these concepts to, uh, to make uh, our system um, more responsive to the needs of working people. You know, people, most people work um, uh, because uh, they, 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 they work to live. Right. Um, they don't live to work. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a distinction that we're seeing uh, more and more, particularly young people today, wanting to make. Right. Uh, so I think that it's important that as we advance, um, as we head into the future, into this post-COVID world, that we allow ourselves, that we encourage ourselves to find those solutions. And I think that um, given the work I've done and my experience and the unique experience I've had, uh, that I can be helpful in doing that. Let's talk a little bit about your equal pay um, <clears throat> legislation. When you were researching that and you were looking into that, what were the, the factors that, that were playing out? Was it that companies, hiring managers, just 
wanted to offer women less money? Was it was it uh, like so uh, uh, embedded in the attitudes? Uh, what were some of the factors? Why would because you know on the surface you're like, well, of course, if they're equally talented, of course you would pay them this, you know, equal. What are some of the factors that go into the workplace that contribute to a woman making less money than a man, even though they're doing the same work? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, this this goes back probably hundreds of years, just this marginalizing women's work. Women's work is not as important as men's work has always been the attitude or men work to support their families, but women don't have to make as much in order to support their families because the men are doing it. So these are old stereotypes, um, old values. Oftentimes, to be honest with you, I like to think that this discrimination is really not intentional, but it's so embedded Uh, in the way we think of things. Let me give you an example. Uh, Years ago, and I've been working on this issue for 30 or 40 years, um, I was on the State Commission on the Status of Women back when Jerry Brown was governor for the first time. And we uh, would pay in looking, we were doing comparisons of different jobs and what the pay schedule was. So tree trimmers working for counties uh, were being paid more than women who were emergency room nurses. Now, why is that? I mean, a tree trimmer, and they're primarily male, you know, they're they're lifting heavy equipment. It could be dangerous. Um, Most of the nurses, women. Um, But when you take a look at and do a comparison of the work, a tree trimmer, there's some strength uh, required for that. Uh, But an emergency room nurse usually has more education than a tree trimmer. Um, a lot more responsibility being in, a, uh, in an emergency room, uh, higher stress level, anxiety. Um, frequently, the work is more complex. Now, why do we pay the tree trimmer more? It's because there's an assumption that physical work should be paid more than this non-physical work. Now, I don't think in today's world we agree with that. And frankly, when we started challenging that back 20, 30 years ago, people said, oh, no, 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 that's not right. But the problem is to get them to focus on these longstanding preconceived notions is not easy. Change is not easy. And so um, it was really important Uh, that we identify and require when you look at hiring someone, when you look at what you are paying them through the course of their journey uh, as they advance, if you will, you ask yourself, am I paying less to a woman for any gender-based reason? And if there is a gender-based reason, that is unlawful. That is illegal. And now, if you have a man and a woman, they're doing similar work, The man has more training or education, uh, greater responsibility. There are differences in the job. That is uh, justification. Let's take a look at it the other way. If the woman has more training and education and responsibility, she should be getting paid more. Frequently, we'd find that they were being paid the same. And so... What, what part of this legislation is that I've done and the part of, part of the work that I want to keep doing is having companies look in the mirror at themselves, especially these larger companies who think that they're, you know, they've got you know, 40% of their workforce is women. Then the question is, well, in what job categories? Are they in the lowest job categories, which is frequently what you will find, particularly women and people of color? What about mid-level upper level echelons, the higher you get up in a company, it becomes more white and more male. Mm -hmm. And companies don't necessarily think this way, but I've done legislation that now requires in in pursuing equal pay, that they have to do these annual reviews in these different job categories and to see what the race and the ethnicity and the gender is of the employees in those different categories. And what companies are finding is that they are indeed discriminating, but they are not necessarily doing it intentionally. So basically what they have to do is take affirmative, aggressive steps to overcome that kind of bias. 
And we're seeing that now, uh, particularly as we focus on the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and other areas we, where we are recognizing that, that we are discriminating against people. And I don't think most of it is intentional. And frankly, even if it is, we're going to change it and particularly in the area of gender. So my focus has always been in the area of gender and uh, we are trying to move that ball forward. So like having more women on corporate boards. We know when you put women uh, in the boardroom, making the key decisions about a company's uh, decision-making, their activities, their risk, uh, their governance, uh, the data all shows that when you have a critical mass of women on a board, the board is more productive, more profitable, has better governance, is more um, uh, uh, worker-friendly, has uh, greater uh, transparency, uh, and is less uh, or is more risk-averse. Uh, and thus more successful. The data shows that from companies like uh, Merrill Lynch to Goldman Sachs to Credit Suisse. And in fact, what we're seeing as a result of this legislation, which was the first of its kind, um, when, uh, when I wrote the legislation and got it passed and signed by then Governor Brown, um, and we're now seeing companies like Goldman Sachs saying to startups, we're not gonna fund you unless you demonstrate diversity in particular gender diversity on your board, because we know that your company will do better. Mm -hmm. uh, NASDAQ has just come out in the past three or four months making a similar uh, proclamation. No companies, no new companies will be added to the NASDAQ unless they demonstrate diversity in their boards. Um, BlackRock, another huge investor, saying the same thing. So we're starting to see companies, again, looking in the mirror and realizing that they need some, many of them are just going to need to expand their boards to add more women, to add more uh, diversity, because 70% of all goods and services purchased by um, of these companies are purchased by women. Hmm. So, uh, it, you know, it, it, it kind of makes sense. And you don't want to leave 52% of the population's life experience um, outside the boardroom where the key decisions are made about the, these companies. And we have so many women who are so qualified, uh, competent women um, with experience and education who just would love to serve on a corporate board. Uh, and so by breaking that glass ceiling and opening the door to more people, uh, these companies are gonna be more successful. Now, uh, let's, let's talk about that. Have you seen uh, an impact yet in terms of numbers? I, I recall seen a story, I don't remember particularly, but I, there was a report that came out and I recall seeing some stories that so far we're not seeing too much of an increase in terms of women on these corporate boards. Um, what's your take on the impact of your legislation so far? Well, that, that there are different reports and the report that said we haven't seen that much doesn't take into account um, the fact, what it did is it took into account only the companies that reported but about half the companies didn't report. What, what has been done through the California Partners Project is they've gone behind the actual company reporting and discovered that in fact, they have appointed women to their boards. Uh, so we have seen significant movement here in California where the law, actually the law not only um, applies, but there are potential significant fines to be levied if companies don't add their add women. So we've only got now, I think it's uh, three or 4% of all the California publicly traded companies that are um, uh, have their main uh, campuses here um, uh, in California who don't have women. And by the end of this year, they've got to have three women on their boards. And we're seeing this happen uh, because companies are recognizing the value, um, not only because it's the law, uh, but because uh, when they look at the data, they want to be more profitable. Shareholders are now starting to demand that they expand uh, diversity uh, and inclusion on their boards because it's going to bring in more money to the companies. Sure. Uh, and we've got the BlackRocks and the Goldman Sachs and the Nasdaqs and others who are saying to these companies, you've got to add more women, you've got to add more diversity uh, if you want our support. So it is happening and it is happening in, in greater 
their numbers, uh, particularly when companies re realize that, uh, the, that that claim, that sort of knee-jerk white male reaction, oh, there aren't enough qualified women, is just a bunch of baloney. Yeah. Um, and there are registries out there. There are entities that I've actually become familiar with that are companies that are designed to do uh, their headhunter companies. They're companies that are specifically designed to place women uh, on boards. And some of the women um, who have uh, um, interest in this are amazingly qualified. And I would submit to you probably a lot more qualified than Joe's son-in-law, who somehow found himself on a corporate board yeah. making two. $250,000 a year from, you know, a month or two of real hard work. So um, we're seeing it happen. It's happening in other states now. The conversation is happening. And to be honest with you, sometimes the key is just get the conversation going uh, and then things will happen. And we're seeing that happen as well in this legislation. And uh, other states, other lawmakers in other states are kind of mimicking what you did in California, right? We're sort of seeing it happen throughout the country. So, so when it comes to my equal pay legislation, <laughs> there are 42 other states that have taken that legislation and used it as a template for legislation they've introduced in their own states. Wow. Um, when it comes to the corporate boards, the state of Washington copied the, the legislation almost verbatim, which I'm delighted, you know, what is it, imitation is the greatest form of flattery. Um, I'd love to see every state do this. I'd love to see it done on a federal level, but that, you know, that's asking too much for the federal government to agree on much. But um, we are seeing a number of other states that have started. Uh, they haven't gone quite as far. They're urging companies to take a look, uh, which is the way I started, by the way, back in 2013. But it, it went nowhere. Just gently urging was not a successful uh, approach. Um, but there are other states. And again, as we see this movement moving forward, as we see uh, gender equity starting to intersect with racial and ethnic uh, equity and inclusion, uh, we are seeing movement here. And I am pretty optimistic that we will see the results. Yeah, are you sure you don't want to run for Santa Barbara mayor? Are you sure? <laughs> um, you just, you know, so so thorough and detailed on, on everything. And But let's transition. Let's talk about Santa Barbara politics, sure. if you don't mind. Um, you know, we've got um, Kathy Murillo, who's going to run for uh, re-election for Santa Barbara mayor. We have Deborah Schwartz, who is um, running for, for the spot. You know, she's a longtime planning commissioner. And, uh, you know, tying it back to you, your longtime district director, James Joyce, is uh, also announced that he's running for, for mayor. You know, there was lots of, uh, not lots, maybe it was just me and Jerry Roberts talking about Hannah Beth should run for mayor. Um, so you're, you said you're done. Um, what's your take on this race? And are you, are you behind James? Um, you know, how do you approach this, this contest coming up this year? Well, you know, um, I, I am supporting James Choice, and James, uh, I've I've seen James work up up close and personal. He was my district director for seven of my eight years in the Senate. I think he did an outstanding job. Uh, I think James has a tremendous. Uh, facility for uh, being able to sense from people what they need. Um, and I think that's really important in today's world. Um, I, I'm very uh, pleased with the work he did, very proud of his, uh, um, his uh, activities and uh, uh, the way he represented me. And, and uh, I'm kind of a, a loyal person. Uh, he was uh, very loyal to me, worked hard. Uh, you know, there, there were some bumpy uh, issues on, along the way, and he was uh, steadfast and, uh, and tough. Um, and I, I think he'll do a great job. And so I'm uh, uh, very proud to, uh, and honored to endorse him. What do you think of what's going on in, in Santa Barbara? Um, I, I know, obviously, uh, this is politics, so you have to um, pick your words wisely. Um, but, you know, we've got um, a lot of criticism of the incumbent mayor for, for a lack of leadership. Um, and, and, and that's sort of a talking point of, um, you know, these candidates who are, who are emerging. Um, and, 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 you know, when we talk about women on corporate boards and we sort of talk about, you know, the importance of women in these leadership positions, um, you know, we've got a situation where some people are saying Kathy's not done a great job, you know, and we've got James Joyce who's, who's saying, you know, I'm going to do it. Um, I, I want to run. He's a male running against, you know, in a city where we've had 
historically, like 30 years of women mayors, you know, um, you know, can you talk a little bit about the job the mayor has done? And, or, or can you, if you don't want to go specifically, what are some of the issues or problems in Santa Barbara that we need to make a switch right now? Well, you know, I'm not going to badmouth Kathy. I like Kathy. Um, yeah. I endorsed her the first time around. Um, it's, this is a very tough job. Um, and, um, you know, we've, we've seen uh, the collapse of the retail business world. Um, this isn't a problem just for Santa Barbara. Uh, we've got landlords who would rather see uh, empty storefronts. Um, I think there might be some financial benefits there. Uh, this this is, uh, has depressed the community. Listen, I've lived here for 40 years. I love walking downtown uh, uh, Santa Barbara. When I first came to town and was a deputy DA, I'd uh, love to sneak out every now and then at the noon hour and go uh, walking up and down the streets where there were local businesses uh, that uh, existed. There wasn't a Starbucks on every corner. It was a <laughs> local shop and, and uh, you go in and uh, get a sandwich from someone who, who you came to recognize over the course of time. It's their little company, their little shop. Um, uh, but uh, we, we're seeing the collapse of the retail industry as a result of the Amazons and uh, you know online shopping. The online world has just taken off. Uh, so you know, this is a tough time. Uh, we've also had the problems associated with uh, uh, welcoming in these cruise ships uh, for better or for worse. Um, are they going to help our economy? You know, that we're not quite sure. Certainly there have been some indications, uh, but there are also consequences. The, you know, the problems associated with a huge uh, cruise ship uh, dumping its uh, waste out in our harbor uh, or out to sea not that far from us. Uh, there's a problem we have. Uh, it's very expensive living in this community. The, the cost of land, that's not the problem. That's not the fault of the mayor. Um, uh, and yet uh, we have uh, very, very strong opinions about uh, infill in this community. You kind of can't win on that subject. Uh, and yet we need to do better so that we can do more with uh, affordable housing. And then we have a serious um, homeless problem. But so does just about every part of California. If you're a homeless person and you can choose to live in Des Moines, Iowa in the winter or Santa Barbara, California, you know, just because people are homeless doesn't mean they're stupid. I mean, in fact, um, it's a good choice. The problem is it's hard for us to accommodate that need. Uh, and um, back in the days of when Ronald Reagan was governor and he announced that we're going to create community based care. Uh, for the homeless and basically um, emptied out all of our institutional facilities and did not build that community-based care. Um, and, and yet, you know, it's 30, 40, 50 years later, that, that, that explanation uh, is now a little long in the tooth, uh, but it's expensive to build that kind of care. We don't have that infrastructure. Are we committed to it? Um, we should be committed to it because frankly, the cost of incarcerating people um, is a lot more than if we were to do more community-based care. Where are we gonna create those centers? How are we gonna monitor these folks? Um, these are all really important questions that aren't just the responsibility of the city. They're also the responsibility of the county. So the county's got to step up on this issue. And frankly, Santa Barbara County, when it comes to mental health issues, has not led um, throughout the state. Uh, and in fact, we have sort of been behind. Yeah. You can't deal with the mental health issues by just having a puff out at the sheriff's office at the department. Uh, and yet there are indeed problems associated with the cost. So where do we spend our limited resources? I mean. These are not simple issues and they're not simple um, solutions. So uh, I, I think that we really have to have, um, a, a, you know, a kind of a come to Jesus meeting. We've had a charrette uh, in town, which I think is very exciting. I've uh, participated in them in different parts of the state. Ventura, uh, the city of Ventura did one. It's where the community comes together and helps envision what the future of the city is going to look like. And I will tell you, it's been something I know many of us have been calling for for decades. We now have closed State Street and seen the rejuvenation 
of, the, of State Street. It is among the most ideal locations to close off and to make a promenade similar to what they did years ago in Santa Monica, uh, what they've been doing in different parts of the state. They've done it up in uh, San Luis Obispo. Um, uh, they, they have similar concepts throughout the state. And I hope that it's going to be permanent and that um, uh, with the great wisdom and foresight of our city leadership, whatever it may be, whoever it may be, we really work to create that kind of welcoming place for the people of our community to come, to enjoy, to spend money, to bring in you know, our visitors, we are a beautiful place to come. We want people to come and enjoy what we have to, to spend their money and then go home um, and allow uh, our communities, all our communities to really enjoy the beauty uh, and uh, the sophistication really. I mean, we when you think of downtown, we, 20, 30 years ago, working with Hal Conklin way back then, uh, we were talking about envisioning um, a cultural center. We have the Arlington, the Granada, the Ensemble Theater, uh, the museum. We've got the library. We've got so much downtown. It's an extraordinary resource. Um, and I do believe that those things are really starting to kick in now. Uh, and we just need to continue doing that uh, to continue envisioning the Santa Barbara that I think will benefit all of us. And at the same time, we got to put more housing up. And then the question is where? And then we also have that infrastructure, you know, our our sewer infrastructure, our electrical infrastructure, our water infrastructure. I mean, there are all sorts of needs that we have that we've got to address if we are going to uh, meet our uh, growth requirements that exist in the state. We, have three, we are 3 million housing units short in the state of California. Yeah, uh, well, you should be James Joyce's uh, cons political consultant or advisor, <laughs> you know. Uh, um, uh, let's talk, I know you've been a supporter of Governor Gavin Newsom, and so in this context of State Street and downtown and, and businesses, you know, as you know, businesses have been very frustrated. We still don't have in-person uh, uh, dining right now. Uh, Santa Barbara is very fortunate because they were at the same time also had this proposal to close State Street. It had always been something that they had been thinking about, and so they were able to allow the outdoor dining and uh, the parklets to some degree less successful, but it is, um, you know, an opportunity on the side streets to, to have outdoor dining. But a lot of the businesses are really frustrated because they haven't been able to um, have indoor dining. And for a period that they were, it was like 25% and, and then they're able to do it, then they have to close. And then there's this recall of Governor Newsom. Um, what do you think of this, this effort to recall, which, um, um, obviously has a lot of supporters. Uh, you know, I know you're a supporter of him. What do you, what do you think of this effort? Um, are people short-sighted here? Well, I think it's really unfortunate. You know, uh, as I said, right at the top of the hour, um, the problems that we're all trying to deal with now are not created by Governor Newsom. They were created by an ineptitude and an incompetence at the federal level uh, without real consideration, without a plan, without any real effort made to try to uh, handle this uh, pandemic uh, early on. And so it's fallen to the states. Um, take a look at what's gone on throughout the various states. California's not alone. We've had, you know, we're dealing with this uh, like most other states, sort of on the blind. We had no backup, no background in this area. Uh, the reason that we've had starts and stops is because when we've opened up, we've seen an increase in the virus and the increase in the number of deaths. It's not like the, the governor's doing this to get back in business. We'd all like to see these businesses open, but take a look at different states, take a look at different communities in California when it comes to the distribution of the uh, vaccine. Um, I was just talking to a friend of mine up in the state of Washington yesterday who sent her mother-in-law to Bend, Oregon um, from the state of Washington to Bend, Oregon so that she could get a COVID shot. Mm. Um, I've talked to, to friends and family I have in Chicago that have been up all night trying to get online. I talked to my brother back in Massachusetts who spent days trying to get online and then would be erased online. Um, take a look at the idiot in Texas who's now opening everything because the people of Texas don't have to wear masks, but the rest of us do. I mean, come on. Um, this and, and, and Dr. Fauci said, what is wrong with you? 
um, they are Neanderthals because what's going to happen is we're going to see spikes again and then things are going to have to close down again. The, the solutions are not rocket science. The solutions are wear a mask. The solutions are stay socially distanced. And the solution is do not congregate inside buildings or uh, with any large groups for any period of time. We know that if people will just follow those rules, we will be able to reduce uh, this pandemic so that we will in fact be able to develop that herd immunity and that we will be able to reopen again. And this, um, if people are frustrated uh, with Gavin Newsom, uh, who they should be frustrated with, but although now hopefully we don't have to give any consideration uh, to uh, the former so-called president who is absolutely incompetent and, and, and mean-spirited about all this, was unwilling to accept uh, the the deaths of people. It was a hoax. It was fake. It was, but it wasn't. And so we have, uh, as I said, there, there are a lot of families who are in mourning, who are going to be in mourning, who've lost grandma, who have lost a daughter or a son or, um, or you know, whose health has been uh, irrevocably uh, impacted by uh, this COVID virus. Um, uh, I, I know Gavin Newsom. Dumbest thing in the world was to go have dinner with a bunch of friends, um, granted. But compared to some of the dumb things that we've seen, uh, some of the outrageous behaviors we've seen, um, uh, is that a benefit, you know, is that justify a recall? Absolutely not. And this recall is being funded by the Trump supporters primarily, both in California and nationally. The National Republican Party has stuck its nose into California's business uh, and is leading the financing uh, of this recall. Um, it's likely to fail. It should fail. People should not be recalled. Um, and, and certainly they're not recalling the governor of Florida or the governor of Texas because they don't have the ability to do that. But I suspect that the good people of Texas would be out there in droves getting this guy recalled um, in a hot minute today. Uh, but California, because we do have broad birth for what recall could be, in my opinion, it should be simply for malfeasance. Uh, this isn't malfeasance. This is frustration. And I think we're all feeling it. And I think if people would wear their masks and stay socially distanced uh, and allow us to uh, reduce this pandemic down to a relatively safe level, uh, we could go back to normal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Gavin Newsom's dinner and you, you, you addressed it, you know. Um. You know, he made a mistake. It was a dumb move. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the guy is only human. Um, listen, he's got four little kids at home. Yeah. The notion, I ask anyone, anyone listening here, you got four little kids at home. You've got a, a wife that you don't get a chance to really spend a heck of a lot of time with and your best friend's having a birthday. Dumb decision, granted. Um, I think it's cost him dearly. I think he was, it was a bad, uh, the wrong move. Uh, but is that a reason to recall a governor? He's a human being, made a big mistake, and he apologized. Unlike a lot of other politicians out there who've never made a mistake in their whole life. Um, so I just say, um, I know that he rused the day for having done it, uh, but let's move on. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of the uh, critics... <laughs> They, they feel more offended because they feel like it's hypocrisy. You know, we're being told, eat in your backyard, eat outdoors. And the, you know, the person at the top is not doing that. But let's, we got a few more minutes. I want to talk to you a little bit about um, some sort of big picture sort of issues and then wrap up is, you know, 2020 was a very tumultuous year in our, in our country's history. And we saw uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement really take center stage. And it was something that everybody was talking about. And we're seeing sort of um, this, this uh, you know, this change and this awareness of uh, things such as police violence and police brutality and equity and things that so many people have been working on before, but it really emerged on the national scale in 2020. What do you think of the state of the country in terms of, of law enforcement and people of color? Um, what can be done? Well, I mean, let me, let, me, let me ask you the general question. Do we have a problem with police brutality with people of color and what can be done to address this issue? Well, you know, what's interesting about this is that we've been hearing the same uh, hue and cry by the, particularly the, the African-American, the black community for decades, yeah. but there was never any proof because of the cameras, because of cell phones, we now have that proof. Uh, and I think it is, um, it's shocking 
uh, on the one hand, but it isn't shocking because we've been hearing about it. The, the community has been screaming and crying out about this for, for decades, if not for hundreds of years. And I think we do have a problem. Uh, I think we need to uh, reevaluate what policing is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about protecting the community. And I think what's happened over the course of the last decade or two is we have, we have militarized our police departments. Um, I remember the day when uh, the police officers would walk the, the community and um, uh, make sure that uh, people put that nickel in the, uh, the parking meter or made sure that people crossed at the crosswalk or if they had too many bundles, they'd escort them across the street or they'd stop in to see how, how business was for Joe uh, and uh, um, make sure that people were kind of behaving themselves. We, we become sort of a paramilitary operation when you see the tanks and you see the military garb and the, the machine guns. I mean, we've created this mentality, which I think has um, helped to fuel this kind of us versus them mindset, which is wrong, which I don't think is what the public wants. Um, and I certainly think it has put a lot of the black community at risk uh, because of um, this notion that if there is a, uh, a black person walking the streets of a quote unquote white neighborhood, they must be up to no good. Uh, and therefore, it is appropriate to use uh, force and to perhaps even use uh, deadly force. And I think we need to take a step back. I think we need to do a lot of retraining. And frankly, I think we have to take a look at our recruitment, because what we've discovered after the insurrection of January 6th is there are a lot of people uh, who are so-called law enforcement, so-called military, who are people who ascribe to these far-right uh, political extremist groups um, that tend to be racist, that tend to be anti-Semitic, uh, that tend to be um, hostile uh, toward the democratic process, and we have to do better than that. Yeah, you know, I recently did an interview with the new uh, Santa Barbara police chief, the interim chief, Barney Malekian, and, you know, I asked him that question, you know, and one of the things that struck out, struck me was, you know, he was very, very aware and acknowledged the issues on a national scale, but said, you know, here in Santa Barbara, we don't do it that way, you know, and I think one of the challenges of this whole awareness is that people always sort of want to attend and to say it's over there, you know, it's not here. Um, it's like we don't want to wait for a video <laughs> of some horrible act before we acknowledge that that you know there there are problems you know and I think the thing that a lot of people are trying to address is that you know these are things that happen not necessarily in Santa Barbara County where you have the viral video of something horrible but maybe it's uh, certain people are pulled over more often than others you know people are questioned more often and those kind of things over time you know are also violence you know that those things affect people in a way where they don't feel safe anymore and sure. so I think there's an awareness that needs to happen that not all police violence and brutality is just the video we see in these other states or these other areas that sometimes it's just sort of the day-to-day -day or you know why are you hanging out in this area at this park you know aren't there other issues going on you know around town and so I think that's part of the change we're seeing more of an awareness of this implicit bias that we see you know that's often much worse it's the it's the day-to-day -day stuff that we put up with that people don't well, I think that and I agree uh, Josh I think we need to do better training yeah. I think you know I think we all have our biases yeah. Uh, life experience leads you to, to conclusions that sometimes are biased. Uh, what's important is that we identify those biases, that we recognize them, and that we try to work through them uh, and, and um, uh, at least become more self-aware and so that our behaviors do not adversely impact other people because of those biases. And I think, uh, um, you know, we do, we, uh, I can say that uh, um, uh, our, our most immediate past police chief, I think, worked really hard to try to address those issues. Um, and I think that there are a lot of uh, police officers, a lot of law enforcement people who really try hard uh, not to have biases and to treat people fairly and with dignity and respect. And yet it still exists. And I think um, we can never be too cautious about trying to identify those uh, biases in our community and within ourselves.
And I think that these are very teachable moments. And I think, frankly, it's a, an opportunity uh, to really move beyond some of those racial prejudices that have been in this country. You know, this country started it with slavery. Um, and there will people are people who will argue, and I tend to agree with them, that there is still enormous racial bias. There's, there's all sorts of prejudices in this country. We're now seeing an increase in anti-Asian bias. Um, there's anti-Semitism that runs rampant through um, this culture. Uh, there, there's all sorts of biases that, we, and certainly with our Becerro uh, um, uh, past history, uh, we've just got to recognize them and try to work around them. And we have to also try to reach out to others who are not the same as we are and become uh, more sensitive to and more respectful. So uh, I know a few years ago, we had that open table uh, process. I think it was the Walter Capps organization, which now has changed names. I can't remember of it. What a great opportunity once a month to just invite people to come and sit and talk to your neighbor and get to know each other. You know, when we do that, we are bound less by fear and more by by compassion uh, and empathy and kindness. And those are the things that we need in order to move our society and move our community forward. Yeah, and you identified a lot of it. Of course, you know, Native American genocide at the beginning, of course, you know. Oh, is, absolutely. Is, that is know, the, our and, whole and country. I apologize. <laughs> I apologize for not even uh, not starting with that, but because that clearly, uh, you know, we, uh, we, the Europeans came in and just took over the land of the indigenous people here and killed them off um, uh, to the extent that they could uh, and were effectively able to do that. And we uh, have got to recognize and honor that culture, which is a, a culture that is so uh, founded in the environment and Mother Earth and things that we could, we really could all learn uh, with the, the tenets and the, and the values of our indigenous people. Uh, and certainly that would also be something that, that we should be doing in our schools uh, and that we should be doing as a, as a community. Yeah, we're seeing the ethnic studies curriculum <clears throat> being introduced, you know, at, 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 um, at high schools. Uh, just quickly, uh, um, Kamala Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris, um, uh, you know, in a minute or two, uh, what, you know, wh how important is it for people to see her in that position from your perspective? It, you cannot, um, you cannot imagine. Uh, it's important for women like me. Um, who are the older generation to finally see a woman uh, in a position as a president or vice president of the United States of America. Uh, it is important for my daughter to see women a little older than she. So if that were something she aspired to or women her age, and it's certainly important to our grandchildren to see that women can and are capable of uh, and qualified of uh, and are sitting in positions of influence and power in this country. For my granddaughter to see Kamala Harris get sworn in was, I think, a highlight for her. Yes, yes, she said to her mommy, you see, there is a girl uh, who's the vice president of the United States. And the impl uh, implication is that she could be too. And when you open the doors to half the population, and we know that women leaders are successful leaders, um, it gives me great confidence. It's a great responsibility. And I know she realizes that. She mentions it all the time that she got there on the shoulders of others and will be there as an inspiration to others and is the first and certainly not the last. I think it's a critically important moment. And it will be even, I think, the 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 greater significance when we call a woman madam president yeah and just to wrap up i'll give you the last word uh you know you've been such a monumental and substantive and impactful lawmaker you know you've you've uh you've done so much you know so much that we didn't talk about today you know we talked about some of the really big things that you've done um you know so i want to thank you for your public service and uh you know uh it's too bad you're, you're done with, with public service, but you're going to have an impact in this other role. Um, let me just leave you with the last word, you know, you know, just uh, what do you want to tell people about your time, your service, you know, what we haven't talked about and uh, sort of, uh, you know, leave people with a source of uh, 
you know, thought going forward, you know, as we exit the old administration and enter the new one? Well, I hope that I've served the community well. I think I have. I know, you know, people don't always agree with, with my perspective, but I've really been committed to trying to save and protect our coast, such a valuable resource to us, so integrally important to the, to the future of this planet. Uh, work on trying to create greater gender equity and create a more favorable work environment for people. Uh, also, re recognizing we're, we're an aging population here in California, and we need to recognize that. So there are so many issues I hope that I have uh, been able to um, help advance. But I think the important message at the moment is for people not to give up, never to give up. And we have to believe in our democracy. People have to get engaged. If you don't like something, then speak up. But we also have to be working from the same set of facts. What's real is what's real. And if we can want to disagree, it's okay to disagree, but we have to be working from the same reality that democracy is a good thing, that education is critically important to preserve and protect that democracy uh, for opportunity for our young people, and that we are all part of a rich, diverse quilt of humanity, uh, and that we need to respect each other, we need to be kinder to each other, we need to uh, share um, those kinds of moments of our humanity and work together uh, to achieve a greater future for all of us. And so I guess if there's anything, that would be what I'd like to leave people with, Josh. All right. Well, thank you, Hannah Beth Jackson. Good luck. My pleasure. Take care.